Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory and uh, whatever else we have uh, uh, on our mind. Um, but today is a very special episode. It's not only a special episode because it's the first episode of our season three, which we're very excited about. We're going to have lots of amazing guests, um, but also because we have a really special guest for this episode. Who's our special guest for this episode, Sam? David, you've you've nailed me to the hot seat. Uh, I have a book that is out today. Uh, and you've been generous enough to call in an outsider to take my role so that I can become the guest. Yes, we're very, very excited to be talking about Sam's new book, Humane, and a couple of other ideas of Sam's. Um, but it's, uh, the book is available at uh, at your better and, in fact, your worst bookstores everywhere. Hopefully, it's available in airports and, you know, uh, coffee shops and every every other place that they sell books. Um, um, it's good. We had a really, really good discussion. Our colleague John Witt joined us to... Uh, to um to to grill Sam about it. It was a really fun fun discussion. Um, uh, we also have some news for the first time. Digging a hole has merch. We have T-shirts, mugs, uh, pens, and and who knows what's coming next. Um, and so we've decided to the beginning of every episode hold a little contest. And the contest uh, will will ask a question, and the best answers, not just the fastest, but the best answers we receive. Um, will um uh, uh we will send uh some item or several items of merch to um so uh the uh so I'm about to ask the question but you can email your answers to dingaholepodcast at gmail um uh and so here's the question who were the members of the Sally Fowler Rat Pack ranked by your favorite to least favorite member of the Sally Fowler Rat Pack and including your favorite quote said by a member of the Sally Fowler Rat Pack. Um, uh, um, next episode, we will give our definitive rankings um, and best quotes said by said members. Um, uh, Sam, do you have any thoughts before we get going? Make sure to do it within 500 words. It's it's like an especially tough exam. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, uh, no, no, no long, no long essays, um, uh, uh, and or and no video clips. Um, well, unless you have to. Um, uh, uh, very good. Um, uh, thank you so much, and uh, let's get to the episode. Welcome to digging a hole, and a welcome to my special co-host for this episode, John Witt. John's my colleague at Yale Law School, although in my experience, he can most often be found dragging his kids to different baseball fields around Connecticut. He's also a leading historian of the law of war, most notably with his terrific book, Lincoln's Code, The Laws of War in American History. He's also a leading figure in legal history and in discussions about legal history's methodology. His most recent book is American Contagions, Epidemics in the Law from Smallpox to COVID-19. Welcome, John. Thanks, David. There's a debate about who's dragging whom, but, um, but other than that, you know, more, more or less, maybe, maybe right. <laughs> um, so we wanted to have John on the show as the co-host because the guest for this episode is the regular host of the show, Sam Moyne. We're here to talk about his new book, Humane, How the U.S. Abandoned Peace and Transformed War, a book critical of the whole project of the laws of war, and also about his recent essay with Justin DeSaltis-Stein on the domestication of critical legal history, which is organized around a critique of the theoretical moves of legal historian Bob Gordon and an essay about Gordon's influence by John Witt. So, John, this should be fun. I think it will be, David. It's, 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 um, it was a, an appealing invitation. I'm excited to talk about this. Sam and I are longtime buddies, co-teachers, fishing partners, 
and sparring partners. And so, so this, this should be a fun and interesting conversation. I'm glad, glad to be a part of it. So uh, fans of legal history, we should have some fireworks today. Sam, how does it feel to be in the hot seat? I don't know how it's happened that I've become, you know, the victim on my own podcast, but I'm very grateful to David for the idea and John for, you know, serving to bring his pitchfork. Sam, as I read it, the central argument of the book is that there's something deeply, deeply wrong about having holding a wedding in New Canaan, Connecticut. Could you care to explain what your problem with oven oven roasted rainbow trout in orange reduction is? So I I wrote some opening pages in this new book, um, really at the behest of of the publisher. I was told to kind of somehow bring the topic alive, apparently, in the way that the rest of the 400 pages of the book did not. And I opened with a comparison or contrast of two weddings. And it's really, you know, uh, there's a wedding near us in Connecticut where there are some do-gooders, some Americans who think they're good people. Uh, and then there's a wedding uh, somewhere, you know, half the world away. There's wedding videography and therefore a drone in Connecticut, but there's a real drone. And what I try to do it, it, with the wedding half a world away is have the drone not strike uh, because actually uh, the United States stopped uh, waiting for terrorist leaders to come out of hiding at weddings and killing lots of uh, uh, people at nuptials and instead, uh, you know, kills them in, in other ways. And I, I basically ask, is this a good thing? Should we feel happy that someone has made the world a better place in this way that we're living, you know, at, you know, in an empire that has humanized its practices recently? Uh, and so then I go on to just kind of figure out historically, when did this humanization happen in order to leave the reader with that question? Because I don't, you know, take the strongest of stands. So um, other than your uh, your deep dislike for uh, passion fruit panna cotta, um, I take it that the central argument is that the increased precision of the American way of war, drones, airstrikes, and its increased legalism, um, both of which have been lauded for generating fewer civilian casualties, have the ironic effect of making war more common and more lengthy forever, indeed, um, uh, and making the Amer- American power more absolute and legitimate. Um, so, in effect, a more humane method of war makes war more uh, makes war more ubiquitous and absolute. Why would that be the case? So, you know, you're you're really you know attributing to me a a causal argument that I would then have to prove, and I can't you know I can't certainly not to your satisfaction as 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 a certain kind of empiricist. All I want to do is is first kind of review the arguments about this in history, um, because. I think I show that from the beginning, actually near the beginning, there were really loud voices that worried about making war humane, voices that have not been that prominent in recent debates. And so I wanted to give them some airtime. That's the early part of the book. Uh, I also have some kind of chronological arguments about who cared about making war humane. I think they contrast with John's uh, arguments and his really magnificent uh, book that you mentioned, uh, and uh, when when the American state began to craft a more humane form of war, then we get to kind of your question. I basically want to side with those who've raised the possibility that there are risks 
that can accrue with making any practice more humane. Could be, you know, policing or the death penalty. In in the case of this book, it's war. And the risk would be one to control that it could kind of entrench the practice and make it more humane. Now, I think there's extremely strong, let's call it anecdotal evidence that this has happened in our time. And I I do give two kind of principal uh, examples of that. The first is in the years uh, after 2001, when the main debate around American war concerned torture, uh, not whether to have the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, one of those seeming to end now, at least in, in one of its forms, um, but how to treat uh, detainees and especially whether it, it's okay to, to torture them. Um, and then I give a second example, which is the, the coming to power of Barack Obama, uh, who's really the villain of the book uh, and the, 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 the man who inspired me to write it. And what I basically want to claim is that he puts a lot of effort into legitimating rhetorically his acts by by appealing to the humanization of war that he's imposed on it. Now, you could say, well, it didn't make a difference. There's no causal link. They were legitimate or became more legitimate for other reasons. but the president thought it would make a difference. Uh, and I think it did. Uh, I don't set out to prove it with the, the, the rigor, let's say, that some might demand uh, because I don't go there. Uh, but even if it's an allegation, I think it raises a question that we ought to take seriously, which is about whether there's a risk, how to control it if there is. I, I know I'm just the, the guest co-host here, but I'm, I'm having flashbacks to uh, to Moyne on human rights. I've got the disclaiming of causal significance. I've got the, the just raising provocative suggestions move. Like there's a whole series of um, of riffs that I know that I know Sam has used in the past that are uh, that are reappearing here. So I hope I hope we'll be be sure to to drill down on those. Um, before this is over, but but in the spirit of, of bringing out more, more of the book before we um, before we get into what leads you to those postures time and time again, Sam, um, uh, it, it seems really important as maybe the legal history side, it seems really important to you um, to contend in this book that the laws of war have only very recently, very recently become humane in their orientation. Now, here's another overlap, this one substantive with the, um, the Human Rights uh, Project. So help Help listeners, help me uh, understand a little here, because we have hundreds and even thousands of years, you know, long before my history uh, started to take this stuff up, of norms about the use of force in war and near war-like situations. So how is it that this humane goal can be so new? I mean, what on earth else were all those centuries of norms about if it wasn't humanity or, or something, something approximating it? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I am kind of in a rut. I've this book is like one I wrote about ten years ago uh, about human rights, and both of them are are parallel in the sense that they tell long stories in order to ar- argue for short term transformation, um, and they probably overlap in other ways. Um, I'll I'll just begin, you know, 
answering your great, great question by um, saying that my, my answer is, is boringly empirical. Um, when I look out, I, I definitely see evidence for the regulation of war um, or first the aspiration to have regulation that is you know, morally or normatively inflected. And that's from the beginning, you know, the most ancient sources we can find in, in, in quote unquote, our tradition in a, a text like Deuteronomy one finds limitation on the conduct of hostilities, what later comes to be called use and bellow. Um, and then the question is, well, what's the moral content associated with such limitation? And you can look across history and find different moral projects. There's some monotheist project at stake back in the day. There's this medieval chivalrous ethic. I think the concern to minimize suffering and especially the suffering of the so-called innocent um, is, is a characteristically modern um, ethic. And then the question is, who applies it to war when? Um, now, this is where I think you and I come in to start conflict. Now, first of all, um, I, you know, along all dimensions, you know, not just the argument, but the empirical basis and the rhetorical grace, you know, your book is way better. You know, I, I have one small, you know, problem, um, which is that I don't think, I wasn't sure that Americans way back um, really wanted to humanize war in the sense of direct, directly using law to minimize suffering. And I think you argue for that position, if we look carefully. Um, Francis Lieber, this great follower during the American Civil War of, of you know, his fellow uh, German, Karl von Clausewitz, um, claims that there's going to be an indirect effect of having you know, massive force that everyone will be better off in consequence. But that's not what the Swiss project was, which was the direct use of law to minimize suffering as, 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 the, as the direct end. And so I want to tell a story in which Americans don't really get, you know, in, 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 in a big way to the humanizing war project in, in the middle of the 19th century. Now, I wouldn't deny that there are some people out in the audience for whom war can be legitimated after the 1840s and 50s um, by making appeals to its brutality and saying how bad it is and it would be nice if it were different. Um, but I, I think the evidence shows that it's, it, it's a Swiss project that comes later. Then there's a second you know, argument I want to make, which is that's all aspirational and that the law of war, in spite of its Swiss origins in protecting soldiers on the battlefield, really gets taken over by states and is fundamentally a brutal project until yesterday, until the 1970s, when you get some major innovations. Now, it's this is an overstated claim because... I can't deny that there are, there are earlier events, notably in the you know the long campaign to protect POWs, 
that reflect this ethic. Americans are on board much earlier than the 70s. But when it comes to, let's say, war, not the, the periphery of war, but actually killing people, there are some major events in the 70s that I think are first driven by the humane imperative and accepted by the military in ways that would have been unfathomable before, even in Vietnam, let alone any of the prior uh, uh, wars that I talk about, Korea, World War II, and all the way back. And, and those two are the you know, distinction between combatant and civilian and the rule that if uh, a collateral harm, notably civilian injury or death, outweighs military advantage, the military act is illegal. Those are new rules, and Americans adopt them. The American military adopts them in pursuit of legitimate war. Well, Sam, I hear you uh, on on all this. I think I think in some ways you're. Um... Well, I think maybe you've got wrong the comparison between um, your your project and mine. That is to say, I'm totally on board with the middle of the 19th century American tradition being Clausewitzian, right? That, that's um, that's that's my Francis Lieber too. He's right. not the humanizer; he's the critic of the Swiss tradition. Um, exactly. He's the the promulgator of rules, um, but not in the Swiss humanitarian, um, you know, future ICRC. Um, uh, uh, tradition, but but um, but there are pieces of it that end up uh, um, uh, producing some of the same kinds of dynamics you describe later. So, for example, you're right that proportionality doesn't come up later until significantly later. Later, but the necessity rule has a great deal of proportionality in it. That is both uh, a great deal of what's in proportionality. Both have as ingredients a legitimate military end, and then the necessity rule has a means ends connection requirement where proportionality has a balancing requirement. That's, but, but a lot of the work um, uh, can be done under the necessity rationale. And what I would see in a mid 19th century uh, moment is an effort to make the use of force rational, not humane, but rational. That is in the pursuit of some particular military end, constraining the guys from running off uh, uh, into the woods and um, causing mayhem over there, uh, and having having everybody face forward. That, that's the basic mid nineteenth century project, I think. Which which I think is a lot more like what you're describing today than than you're suggesting, because it's military strategy or tactics in hand in hand with a set of. Um, constraints. That is, both are working together. They're not at odds with one another. I, I, I'm willing to take that on board and, you know, seek reconciliation. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll separate later. So, fight, so, fight. I, no, I, so I, but let me just, you know, investigate, you know, exactly the, the nature of this, because it sounds like you're reserving at least some of the detailed content. Um, and indeed the kind of, certainly the branding and the, the direct impulse to be humane for later, well, uh, it, it, except as a fringe benefit on both Clausewitz's view and- It's earlier and later, right? That is Lieber's, it's earlier and later, Lieber yeah. conceives of himself as a critic of what had come before. I mean, right. you know, there's both a, a parochial American tradition here and then a, a um, you know, 
similarly parochial but differently parochial European tradition. And, um, and, and Lieber is imagining himself as a crit- critic. The mid-19th century Civil War guys, of whom you know, I make Lieber the lead candidate, um, are critical of the 18th century Europeans who came before them, who, you know, they are derided as, um, uh, as not understanding, as Clausewitz does, the hard core of, of real conflict. Uh, and also the founding fathers of the United States who have all sorts of things to say about constraints on warfare because they're going to get their asses kicked if the Europeans ever decide to come to come and have a war. Uh, so there, there is, um, uh, I would say it's a kind of, I, I would say that, that appeals to humanity and appeals to ferocity and appeals to rationality are cyclical. They, they arise uh, contingently, he says, you know, planting a word for later. Um, they arise contingently uh, as circumstances differ. We've probably got thousands of years of cycles in which different moves were available and adopted and um, and useful at, at different junctures. Right. So, I mean, you know, we could get deep into this. I think that that is a view and, and it is consistent with, with your book that kind of says there's like a, a dualism or oscillation and it's kind of timeless or at least very long term. And I, I just don't think that gets at the, the modern specificity and the late 20th, late 20th century specificity of the humanizing move. But then there's another kind of qualm I have, which is um, the, the fetishization of the legal in the argument. So if we take a figure like Curtis LeMay, um, who I think on your account would be a, a rational actor, a, a liberian, he sets out to, you know, as he later says, kill a lot of women and children in his immortal words. It had to be done. Um, and, you know, if Lieber had been with him, you know, maybe Lieber would have said, but it's also humane, although um, LeMay never did. And he never thought about the law. Um, so I, I just think somehow later it's of great significance that that legal consciousness with this new content takes hold in American war making in in ways that to me place a big divide between our present and let's call it the remote past of the middle of the 20th century let alone the middle of the 19th well, there's a lot here. I want to hear from uh, from David. One observation, a thing that's going to be that's going to haunt this conversation, is um, a question of the, the the grounds on which force are is being used. Um, and if 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 a if a Curtis, if a, if a Lemay or a Truman or a Stimson is trying to scare away the Soviets, and that's why a bomb is being dropped, that's going to be a different story than using force for the project of emancipation. Um, and so a lot yes. of a lot of what a lot of what's really going on here is um, hmm, kind of a, um, a, a jousting over what the underlying projects are. That, that, that's that's the I think that's the, the heart the heart of the matter. So I want Sam just said the fetishization of the legal as a critique of John, but I found it to be true in Sam's book more than well as much as uh, I don't know a more I don't know. 
uh, much more. Um, but so here's my question, which is, is, am I right to think that the causal mechanism you imagine for humane war uh, creating the conditions for the legitimation or for more war is that war is less costly to Americans sold to Americans in terms of soldier corpses and in moral revulsion from mass foreign killing. And because the price has gone down, the amount has gone up. That's kind of basically how I think of the mechanism that you're proposing. Um, but those seem to me like two pretty different effects. One is a technological effect about the ability to kill people far away in targeted ways. And the other one is about legal and moral constraints placed upon the government from, I don't say from the outside, but internally, that placed on the technological capacities. Uh, but I can't tell which is doing more work for the project of more American war. Um, so why is it that law and not technological development explains the declining cost of war um, uh, and therefore the greater amount of it in your in your view? So if leaders in previous areas had drones, do you think a more permiss- permissive and less internalized legal regime would have meant that leaders engaged in less war, um, uh, like uh, especially in the face of non-state or irregular opponents? Like would Napoleon not have used drone-mounted Hellfire missiles against targeted opponents in the Peninsula War? And, roughly the same way as America, if he had had them. Um, uh, uh, um, Does the continuation of the fact that when we had a legally less uh, interested president than President Obama and Trump, and the policies are pretty similar across all of them, suggest that law isn't playing that strong a causal force at all, and it's really all about the existence of these super fancy technologies. So can you lay out the, the case for humaneness, either as a moral or legal argument, as opposed to technology driving the story that you're telling? Whether, I'm not asking you to run a regression analysis because I know this scare you a little bit, but like, um, um, uh, <laughs> but like, but like, just like, what's the argument? Because I have to say, I didn't quite uh, grok it. Great. Okay. It's, it's not that I, you know, I'm afraid of regressions. I just find them offensive. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll try to, you know, answer your question, you know, squarely, David, it's, 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 it's very worthwhile. Um, and, and there's so much to say. Um, I think there are, I think a few different things I want to say. The first is just to clarify the, you know, modest scope of my claim. There's a lot going on. There are tons of causal factors. If we're in a, a causal world in which, you know, we're determined in the way, uh, you think then we we could even rank a lot of different causes that got us to the present and i would never claim that the humanization that through law under law's auspices uh, has been a or the major factor it's just one whose story i want to tell because i want to reach the people who have staked their careers and lives on it and in particular two kinds of people so at the beginning of the book i um, through, you know, a mouthpiece of a, you know, old novelist, um, proffer two causal pathways. Um, the first is what I call the advocate's compromise. And there I'm looking at um, people in the law of war community, both outside and inside government, um, who are working with each other, humanitarians on one side and you know, lawyers in the military on the other, arguing, bickering with one another about when their practice has become humane enough yet. And I, I, I just want to show that happening because it was predictable that th- this domain of law would lead some people to say, 
it doesn't matter or it's someone else's problem whether we have the war. Once we have it, we should exploit this space of compromise. And I, I want to indict that compromise if it should happen that this risk I'm complaining about that, you know, whether to have the war, whether it's a good thing, what, as John says, the ultimate ends are get lost in the process. Uh, and so that's one causal pathway that you have these humanitarians working with, thinking they're opposed to uh, the, the, the military and the government generally. Then there's this, you know, other thing that I call the, the beneficiaries bad faith. And it's the basic idea is this, when Barack Obama tells us we're good people because we fight more humane wars, we believe it, at least to the extent that we lend our support to the ongoing war. Uh, now, quantifying that is, you know, I don't, wouldn't know how to do it. And that's my basic objection, honestly, to your brand of empiricism that you can't study very many interesting things because we can't, you know, see what's obviously right before us that this kind of deal that Obama proffered us has had a causal effect and a massive one. But you're right that there are some other things going on. I mean, there's the military industrial complex, there's technological change. I think that just to close on, you know, this long winded answer that Generally, we find the technology we morally want. Um, I'll just give an example to, to maybe substantiate this. There's been a big debate about um, World War II era bombing. And Malcolm Gladwell has come out with a book that's actually about some folks who allegedly want humane war and instead Curtis LeMay. Uh, John's Liberian friend gets control and you know kills millions of Asians. All I want to say about the the Malcolm Gladwell example is that it's very interesting that he projects back into the past in ways like the critics of this book have, I think, really convincingly demonstrated this you know this long ago desire to be humane through bombing um, when it didn't actually exist. And I think we, we, we have to look at how people want something. It's also true that they can get it. Um, but it's not the case that like LeMay ended up killing tons of Asians because we didn't have precision back then or the Norden bomb site didn't work. It's because people just wanted and were willing and thought it was tolerable to kill millions of Asians. And something changes in our moral culture. And you know, we ask Raytheon to make one thing rather than another, and they do. So, I mean, I don't want to deny the independent importance of technological change. It's obviously of its great importance, but our, it, it, it's always bound up in moral choices. Well, Sam, a, a puzzle that I have about, about this project and the Human Rights Project um, that, 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 that preceded it is that I, I often have the feeling like you're, you're writing books that are about deflections, to deflections in two ways. So one is that the subjects, the zealous reformers who are in your targets, um, uh, who are in your sights, 
uh, in these projects. Um, your argument often runs that they're deflecting, right? That they're they're distracting us from the thing we ought to be attending to. Uh, we ought to be attending hmm, to things like uh, economic development of, uh, of of countries that are unjustifiably poor, or in this book. We ought to be attending to the domination of some peoples by others, uh, rather than suffering minimization, right? And so, um, so, and that—that's the suggestive, provocative question uh, offering uh, Moyne uh, account. But there's a way in which the Moyne accounts themselves are deflections, because we don't end up hearing very much actually about either in the first set of projects the. Um, uh, um, the economic development or lack thereof, or more importantly, in this this uh, project, about what domination would be, about um, the ways in which the use of force might or might not undo it, reproduce it, uh, create it. I mean, the, the the major players in this story are it's as, as if off stage, and we're talking about the sideshow of the humanitarian lawyers, which is sideshow on your account as well as um, the sideshow on your account. And that's all we're looking at. That's to, to tell me about that deflection. Moin the deflectionist. That's my theory. It's, it's, it's a totally fair theory. And, and, you know, I think there would be other um, ways that would be more forthright and honest to engage some of these problems. And they would take on more of a, of, of a burden of, for example, presenting alternatives uh, that you know would would be convincing, uh, and not just suggest kind of the moral you know turpitude, um, or just mistake um, uh, or tragedy of of you know those who who I've lived with you know, and I I don't really have a good defense there. It's that you know I, it's these these are all autobiographical projects about things that were offered to me as uplifting when I was, among other things, in law school. Um, and, you know, I, these are deprogramming exercises when it comes to myself. Um, now, do I think that in retrospect, we can see that some of the limitations that I'm trying to diagnose which, without offering full-fledged alternatives are appearing more and more as limitations to people beyond you know, one middle-aged deflector? I think so. Um, you know, we're, we're at a moment in American history where as just, you know, current events are demonstrating and public events are demonstrating, um, there's much less appetite for war. And yet amongst elites, there's still a kind of hankering for um, a, a mission that Americans are supposed to keep shouldering. Um, even when it goes dreadfully wrong. Um, and so I, I, I think that, you know, this, this kind of project can um, be defended again in, in the most modest possible terms uh, as asking questions and really abetting a kind of generational well, but let me let me ask Sam because because I, I hear I hear um, I, I get that and I, I resonate to parts of that, but I wonder why just so autobiographically uh, now that you're in that space, um, uh, uh, you chose um, uh, these kinds of reprogramming stories 
Um, you know, I, I call them deflection. You call them reprogramming. But you had another option open to you. That is, you could have you could have adopted co-optation stories. That is, you know, in the post two thousand one. Uh, critiques of torture, critiques of Guantanamo. There were resources for which anti-war folks could uh, take advantage and and use and deploy, and I think did pretty powerfully to mobilize against um, uh, the the use of force, not just the way in which it was used. So the the humanization strategy has offered resources to critics of the use of force, uh, uh, even as it may have... um, uh, may have legitimated or facilitated. So you know, may, maybe you're going to have to do David's regressions because if I've got theories with causal arrows both ways and I've got sure. provocative questions to ask back to you and you got to tell sure. me which which ones actually happen. I get that. But, but you know, again, with with all, with mere anecdata, I think um, I concentrate very intently on those possibilities, in particular through a contrast of Vietnam and, and Iraq and its aftermath. Um, my, 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 my story about the Vietnam war is that, um, decrying brutality and cruelty, which of course I abhor, um, whether in war or in, in any other setting, cause I'm captive to this modern, uh, you know, ethic myself. Um, it, it functions for various reasons we could get into to abet a, an anti-war impulse. And I think that's the model we ought to follow in as, 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 as in politics. Um, so it's not that I'm against humane war, but I think that the claims around it have to work in a certain political, as part of a certain political strategy. Now, I think it's fair that we'd have to find evidence that after the Abu Ghraib revelations in spring 2004, some people decried the brutality of torture and other war crimes as part of an anti-war politics. And my, my intended contribution is to, to narrate as, as an empirical historian that that failed, that this, the, what, what ended up happening is getting the bug um, of torture uh, out of the program of endless war, uh, both in those, you know, in those two phases I discussed before, the later Bush years and in the coming to power and presidency of Barack Obama. So I'm just I'm just not sure one one can credibly argue, even with regressions, that it's it's unfailingly the case that atrocity consciousness is equivalent to or a, a regularly abets. Um, restraints on war itself. I mean, you'd have to argue it's contingent whether it does or doesn't. For sure. I want to argue that in our recent experience, it didn't. And we well, might have been overturned from that. Right. It might of have course, been of course, there, of course, there, of course, it was contingent but overdetermined that as it turned out, the removal of torture from the American equation of war left war more stable rather than less. One of the things I found so interesting about some of the resources you draw on is that they're making a case against humanization broadly, not just about war. So Tolstoy is against less brutal forms of slavery and animal husbandry because they all humanize a systemic evil central to their way of life. And you kind of characteristically characterize Marty Lederman saying he didn't confront whether humanization could work as a spoonful of sugar intended to help the medicine of endless war go down. And so 
I have a lot of questions about this, but one is that do you have a similar critique of humanization across the board or is it really specific to this instance? Um, so like take, take an example, like uh, there are people who think the use of gas powered or, uh, 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 automobiles are an environmental calamity and in our current usage, a human one, given the harms to pedestrians and lives generally. Um, and wonder whether such a person should on this account, like be skeptical about seatbelts and airbags. Um, is it that we should have a more brutal car, we should be against reductions in the brutality of car culture such that we can um, end it, um, uh, if that's what one thinks. Um, uh, uh, lots of practices just aren't reformed ever, and making them humane is just better. Um, and then the, this turns and like, isn't war a lot like that? Right, which is like the claim that the humaneness of war makes it popular. War's always been really popular. I mean, except when you lose. Um, uh, but it's like it's it, it's like it's like I don't know. It's like um, the spoon. It seems to me that one way of thinking about this is that you might be adding a spoonful of sugar to ice cream. Question mark. Okay, um, you know, absolutely fantastic questions, and and, and really, David, they're ones I I I mean the book to prompt. I, I I dwell on them in the first chapter, and I invite the reader to dwell on them in the epilogue, uh, not just about war, but about violent corporal practices generally, and maybe you know practices generally. So I, I just want to make a, a couple of clarifications first. Um, I do cite a lot of people, and notably Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, at least in one phase in his career, who say it would be better to have brutal practices uh, than humane ones um, and not regulate in order to know the evil we're dealing with unvarnished. I don't adopt that view. Uh, I think it's insane. Uh, as you say, some practices uh, differ from others in the extent to which they can be ended. Um, and that seems like a relevant consideration for whether we humanize them or not. Um, even amongst practices that for, for which there's some kind of dilemma where there's a risk to run, they may be each distinctive in how big the risk is. Um, still, it, it, it is true that I think for any practice we're thinking about, we should ask, what are the risks of reform uh, if we could have alternative reforms that would lead to better outcomes. Um, and that's the kind of debate I, I mean to spark. I mean, my own view is that making war humane is a noble project. And at most noble, as John's already suggested, when it's, it's, it's living in communion with a, a more ambitious and broader agenda to constrain force. And I think that's been our mistake in recent years, not to pursue humane war. That's not the argument of my book. It's to sever it off uh, from that more ambitious, broader agenda. In the end, I think you're right that when it comes, I mean, I'm an abolitionist, at least to, 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 to a great extent with war. I think most wars have, even amongst those who've been involved, think about Afghanistan, have been things they regret, even when they, they, they did initiate them. Um, and I think, you know, that's the point of public education is to get people to think in the long view, to think about um, the, the risk they're incurring. So I, I definitely, you know, think that with regard to all the, the, the practices for which there's a new abolitionism, including war or near abolitionism in my case, 
it's it's legitimate to kind of pose these questions, but you're also right that we need to look practice by practice and assess empirically. Well, near abolitionism is going to be another one of those maddening um, uh, moin moves, I think, right? Because the um, well, the John, you want to you want most uh, African Americans out of jail, but you want some jails to remain, don't you? Oh, I, I'm not an abolitionist. I'm not. I have no, no, no. Let me, let me. So, what I hear you saying in this book is that the anti-war folks are the heroes, um, uh, but the underlying problem is domination, and this mismatch between the end of war and the end of domination, because domination happens inside war and outside war, just as suffering Absolutely. happens inside war and outside war. Um, and this is why I would have thought, see, I, there was a chance, there was a chance, although you, you, you weren't going to take it, but there was a chance that you could have made the Lincoln generation your heroes. Because the Lincoln generation doesn't actually want to have the easy place that you just identified in which you could humanize towards some just end. No, their view is much edgier. It, 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 it's, it's that if the end is just, you shouldn't humanize if it's going to make it harder to get there. So, so that's the project. The project is to win because you know you're right. Right now, of course, that's terrifying because horrible, horrible things are done when you're convinced you're right. And much of the law is designed to say, look, whether you think you're right or not, um, uh, we're going to put checks and constraints. And so that's the but so that's the kind of tragic choice that's embedded in the confrontation of whether to uh, um, adopt and have rules uh, about the most serious. Correct. moments in um in in human in human action but so i would have thought um that that your your project should be one of uh anti-domination uh and that you should be evaluating the use of force in every instance for its relationship to domination and that should be the only that should be the only question it's humanization is this sideshow? I mean, it's it's not central sure. to the moral calculus that, that, that sure. underlies the, the book. I think. Sure, I, I I appreciate that, and I think I agree. I mean, I just I just think that I've chosen to write about this topic for various boring reasons. Um, but again, if if you bring the kind of you know the question at the horizon whether something is morally good or a best. Um, emancipation to all of these, you know, sub-debates, uh, you could still intelligibly end up thinking that as a default, uh, not having war is, is better uh, with extremely rare exceptions that you and I have not lived through, um, especially when our country has been involved. And conversely, that as a default, making war humane sounds good, except that it control it, it it incurs this risk uh, of abetting war and in the cases we've lived through domination in ways that we ought to control. Yeah. And so it's not at all that I'm against making things humane or potentially against every war, precisely for your reasons that we're always ultimately asking the question. Can this be defended against my ultimate set of values? But then we do need, you know, rules beneath that. Uh, and my, the the contention of the book, just by choosing this domain of war, um, is that the default around not having 
wars has gotten lost uh, to our detriment and that this risk around making wars humane while a good thing has been missed. So I want to pivot a little bit. Um, one of the questions that I think that answer highlights is kind of the role of kind of a deep ideology in your project of history, the way you do history. And so I want you to talk a little bit about your essay um, uh, with uh, Justin DeSaltis-Stein uh, about um, the your problem with uh, what's now known as critical legal history, because I think it might re-highlight this dispute you you guys are having. Um, so what is the argument of that piece? Just in passing, there's a deep ideology to all intellectual projects, including, For quote, sure. quote, empiricism. Okay, Justin, it's Desotel Stein, and I wrote a piece. I've screwed that up it, twice now. My apologies, Justin. Justin's very forgiving, uh, except one thing. <laughs> which is, you know, we, we wrote a kind of childish piece. It's in history and theory, and we'll put the link in the show notes. So it essentially accuses John of stealing our marbles. And the basic argument is this. Um, there was a debate within something called critical legal studies. I hope we're going to get into that movement in a later episode. Um, there's a recent documentary about it. The debate was about... Um, how to, how to think about the balance of determination and contingency in the law. And our great Yale Law colleague, uh, Robert Gordon, John's guru, mentor, uh, John's written about carrying his dog-eared article around, um, although I didn't read it until recently. Gordon, I think, intervened in a really interesting way at a certain point to basically say, we, we need to pay more attention to functional underdetermination uh, than we have. Uh, the trouble is that, you know, a thousand ships were launched that basically demonstrate the contingency of outcomes. Uh, in CLS, which was a left-wing movement, this was thought to be progressive, and it can be to show the, you know, the the, the fact that our arrangements could have been different because that means they still could be. But it, 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 it happened that a generation of historians of whom John's the leader or one of them kind of took this project of demonstrating the contingency of, of legal outcomes as an end in itself, not just functional underdetermination in relation to all the, you know, determining forces that lead to outcomes, but showing that there's contingency in, in legal rules and legal outcomes. And Justin and I basically protest uh, and say, you know, contingencies there to narrate. Um, I've written a book that alleges that human rights arose contingently in the 1970s, um, but it can't be the end of the story. It's a, a facet of an analysis which, you know, figure, you know, forces us to figure out, you know, what the forces that are causal are and what play in the system there is. Well, um, David and Sam, it, it's just not so. It's just not so. So um, uh, the, uh, uh, if I think of the contingency studies, the ones that would come, that would leap to mind as a, uh, you know, actually one's done under Bob's supervision. So by, a, you know, a generation of, of historians over the last 25 years, 
they are um, they're engaged in the effort to identify uh, how the existing order came to pass for reasons that are motivated uh, by the outrages of those orders. So let's think about what, what some of the, the studies are. I mean, one that leaps to mind for me would be uh, Risa Galibov on Brown against Board of Education, right? So this, this the, 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 the looming place of Brown for the last quarter century of, of legal historians is just huge as we've watched the aspirations of that project collapse and burn um, in, um, uh, in 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 American social justice efforts. I mean, so so and and the Risa Galibov book is about showing lost alternatives, denaturalizing, making less inevitable that particular kind of outcome. Uh, or I think maybe a Karen Tawney on um, the possibility of welfare rights in American administrative law and American administration and um, uh, and social insurance. Or my book on on industrial accidents organized around figuring out how we got to the um, sort of patched together uh, a system of dealing with, um, you know, the, the real tragedy of, of, of work injury. And, and, and crucially, in each one of those studies, the question is, well, which is the better path? What are the right ways to do it? And denaturalizing the present is about liberating new possibilities. Now, the place where um, uh, Justin, Sam, and I disagree, I don't know, Karen and, and Risa and so many, so many others, um, but the place where we dif- uh, we disagree, I think, um, uh, is on the question of whether having established contingency, the next project is mm, a revolutionary emancipation, right? That is to say, there's a there's a there's a kind of um, uh, uh, evangelicism to the the certain moments in the CLS '70s and early '80s crowd, which I think Justin and Sam are are pissed. That that um, that others don't don't carry on, but but you know that evangelical faith can get you in real trouble when you're wrong. Like if it turns out that the reason why welfare reform isn't going to come about has nothing to do with liberals at Yale Law School or Harvard Law School, but instead has to do with a Southern strategy, in which the parties are being totally transformed. Well, well you should know the truth of the matter to formulate your strategy for making a better world. So uh, you know it's the. Um, so that that's the that's the I think the the divide that Sam and Justin are are pointing to, and um, uh, I'm 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 totally thrilled to be a non-complacent pursuer of the fact of the matter, so we can figure out how to actually make a better world rather than rather than dream of one. How's that? You know, I love that, and and it's it sounds like you know just ships passing in the night. Then I mean, you, you, there's there's no doubt I think that. Um, there, there, no one could disagree that it's important to delve down empirically um, to find out, you know, what what alternatives there were and which one won out. And you know, then as in Reese's book, I think you know suggests that the wrong one won out, um, or in in your book to suggest that a certain you know tort regime, accident regime came came online um, at a certain time and place. Um, so that's just doing history. Um, I think there are a couple places where I, th- I think there might be some daylight. Um, first is in, in the kind of an- on the analytical side, it's that there, the, the larger project would have to be figuring out, um, not that there were plural options, 
but why the one that succeeded did. And, you know, saying it's contingent could mean a, a couple of different things. One is that there were plural options and lots of factors were, were there. And, but the other is that it's kind of random. Um, and, you know, the, even the word contingency, which has been really common in these studies, makes it sound like stochastic, like it, it's the latter interpretation. And we just think that analytically, we have to get back to kind of a, a, a more credible view in which, um, you know, we, we don't want to get metaphysical, but whatever room for either accident or choice there is, you know, take place in an environment in which a lot's being determined. And a prior generation of historians was much more interested, and I think of the current and future generations more influenced by Marxism than ours has been, is interested in that determination, um, which is not about contingent outcomes. And then there's the political side. So the CLS project was not historical in the first instance. It led to a generation of professionalized legal historians. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's true that it, it maybe needed to learn more about the facts of the matter and, and, and to the extent that CLS involved historical claims. But, you know, the question is, you know, what's the goal? And it seems as if having a historical practice that's basically saying, well, things ended up this way, could have been different, um, good luck, is not... A, it's, it's not clear what the politics are, and it seems that it forsakes the actual reason why uh, Gordon and all those others were arguing about these things in the first place. So, so I want to follow up right there because this is – I'm coming at this from a left or maybe right field. I'm not sure. Um, uh, but, Sam, your essay feels to me like exactly the way I felt when I read kind of very libertarian law and econ scholars when they when they read uh, someone using economic modeling to come to the uh, result that government inter intervention is justifiable and advisable or the way that originalists or textualists when, uh, are, when textualist arguments or uh, originalist arguments are invoked in favor of uh, – liberal or left-wing outcomes. Um, but I don't, I just guess I don't get on some level why a discipline's tools should remain true to its initial ideological vision. Like what is the reason, the kind of er reason why it's a betrayal that maybe CLS and CLS-inspired historians both had an ideology and developed technical tools that then were could be used by lots of people for lots of different ends. I mean, especially when the particular ideology of CLS looks really dated and weird in a lot of ways these days. It's like a disco era relic in a lot of ways. It doesn't really map on perfectly to any contemporary ideological mission, or many at least. Um, I reading your essay, I just kept thinking of the line, I'd rather be I'd rather be wrong with Sartre than right with Aron. Like you're the the claim here is like who whether John's story is true or not true is not so important. It's like, is it true to the view of Duncan Kennedy? It just seems like a really weird way to go about your day. So am I wrong in thinking that's what you're doing? I think it's uncharitable, but not necessarily incorrect. So <laughs> to be fair, we're turning it back on you from earlier. You owed I owed you one from what you did to John. Totally. So 
Totally. I'm, you look, you know, there's there. there I, should I do believe be no... I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, but I got called Curtis LeMan and Sam got called Duncan Kennedy. So I don't think it's I don't think we're back to we're not even. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Right, good. Remember, Duncan was in the company for, for a bit. Um, so a couple of things just really quick. Um, you know, first, of course, it's true that, you know, tools are there to be reused and repurposed. They're fair game for anyone. No problem. And and. You know, then the question is, John's from the earlier part of the conversation, what are the ends to which they're put? Uh, is it a professionalized historiography that seems to have the same descriptive message at every turn? Or is it something else? And I, I just think that in the end, every justification for every practice, including intellectual practice, has to be political. Um, and, it, and Duncan's was. Um, and so it, it, it has a kind of... N- you know, and superiority to that extent. Second, David, I'm shocked as, you know, an ad- admirer of, of, of Whit Stillman that you've forgotten the close of the last days of disco. You know, when he says that this isn't dead, uh, it will live again and it will be seen as a noble thing, uh, not some outdated trend that is vaguely embarrassing. Just um, wait. Though I would quote that the, the other line from that movie, um, uh, uh, that to thine own self be true is premised on the idea that thine own self is pretty good. But what if be, what if what thine own self is not so good? Um, uh, in which case being true to it may not be, uh, may not be commendable. Um, uh, John, do you want to, do you have one more you want to go? Uh, well, I guess the, um, so there's this, uh, well, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, Whit Stillman, uh, better, better, uh, 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 you know, better wrong with Sartre. The, the lines have become so great. I don't want to belabor this by uh, by getting into the weeds. I guess um, there's a wonder, there's another wonderful line, and it's in Justin and Sam's piece, and it's the suggestion that um, if if the contingency folks got it right, we'd see that actually the law is is capitalism's slave, and, and uh, capitalism's captive. Uh, is the uh, is the line, and um, you know the uh, the the real question is: Will historians emerge to tell that story and to tell it persuasively? And um, so far, so far, those stories end up being you know crude mistakes um, uh, rather than um, rather than successful uh, efforts to um, to tell the, the kind of monocausal. Primitive version that 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 that, uh, that Sam and Justin are referring to. So I, you know, I look forward to the move from essayist to uh, to historian. That'll 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 sell that'll sell the sell the story. Absolutely fair. You know, I Justin wrote that because I avoid you know like the plague the word capitalism for reasons we could get into. But the 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 general CLS view to which I think we should return that. Um, we shouldn't only be sensitive to the way that law is contingent, but that we should show and, you know, uh, prove credibly to people that law is one of the agents of domination in our societies is one that CLS, I think, brought home to the legal academia like no movement before. I think it was implicit in legal realism, but as a reform project, it, it, it pivoted very quickly to the deployment of law to allegedly beneficent ends, whereas CLS really focused intently on a politics that, that started not with contingency, but with unmasking 
And among other things, we one could hope for a credible history that unmasks the way in which a legal regime of humane war, uh, far from being a great ethical service to humanity, perpetuates domination. And so I would I hope someone will write that book and it will not turn out to be if I forget your phrase, John, grievously wrong. Something uh, like that. And I, and I will read it. And, and of course, your difficulty will be that law is going to be indispensable to emancipation, too. Right? Of course, and so, so it's always going to no be both doubt. sides. Just, just not yet. Oh, I mean, well, to, to the extent that there has been any lessening of domination, we've counted on law every time. That's true. That's true. We're at the beginning of that story, unfortunately. There's some good news. On the other hand, we are at the end of this one. So I want to thank uh, John Witt for joining us and being such a uh, brilliant co-host. And thank Sam Moyne for uh, being our first guest and as well as our regular co-host. Um, so thank you both and go out and buy Sam's book. It's hot on the sh- it's hot it's hot off the presses. Um, uh, so um, uh, everyone, thank you so much. <laughs>